Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. Um, I am very excited about tonight's show. We're going to be doing the show on uh, the high cost of uh, looking for a quick fix for children with behavioral disorders. And uh, we are not here tonight to diminish in any way the devastating effects of mental illness on children and teens. Uh, there are sadly many children suffering with severe mental illness, and for them, you know, we need to offer every possible option to give them the best quality of life. Um, but there are also many children struggling with behavioral issues who are misdiagnosed with a mental illness. And finding that line and finding appropriate ways to help these children can be very confusing both to the professionals and to the parents. So tonight we're going to talk about what constitutes a mental illness. How do we draw the line? How do we know when it's best to use psychotropic medications? And when are we doing more harm than good? So today I have two of the most outspoken and knowledgeable men on this topic, Dr. Alan Francis. He is Professor Emeritus at Duke University and former chair of its Department of Psychiatry. He was the chair of the DSM-IV Task Force. He is the author of Saving Normal and the Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. Dr. Francis is the chairperson, as I said, of the DSM-IV, and he has authored hundreds of papers and more than a dozen books. He blogs frequently on the Huffington Post, Psychology Today, National Newspapers, and Education Update. And the New York Post, who titled him the most powerful psychiatrist in America, while Wired Magazine called him the man who wrote the book on mental illness. Uh, Dr. Francis is a respected and sought-after TV media commentator, and I'm thrilled to have him here with Dr. Dale Archer. Dr. Dale Archer is a medical doctor, board-certified psychiatrist, and distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He had founded the Institute for Neuropsychiatry in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and has had a private psychiatric practice for over 25 years. He is now the medical director for psychiatric services at the Lake Charles Memorial Hospital and is the psychiatric consultant for the SW Louisiana Crisis Intervention Training Program, which I would love to have him back on for. They train police officers on how to recognize and deal with mental illness. Um, Dr. Archer um, has had three successful radio shows, a TV talk show, and he has appeared on all of the top national news shows on all types of psychological issues relating to behavioral economics, politics, and everything else. He is the author of Chemical Imbalance, Depression, Taking Charge, and his New York Times bestseller, Better Than Normal, How What Makes You Different Can Make You Exceptional. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. 
Good to be here. You know, I'd like to start off, um, let me first ask um, Dr. Francis, I'll ask the first question of you and Dr. Archer, jump in, um, you know, um, with your thoughts on it too. Um, you know, the increase in psychiatric medications for children and teens is just staggering. Uh, many people are asking, you know, where were these kids with mental illness 30 years ago? And Dr. Francis, you wrote, it usually takes a while before an illness declares itself, and often it turns out that no diagnosis is necessary because the symptoms go away without intervention. That said, there's been a massive mislabeling of psychiatric diagnosis among children because of recent medical fads. In the last 20 years, autistic, the rates of attention deficit disorder have tripled, while autistic disorder and childhood bipolar have each increased by a remarkable 40-fold. Human nature does not change that quickly, but the labels follow fashion and can escalate dramatically without there being an actual increase in symptoms. Our kids have suddenly become sicker. It's just the diagnosis are applied to them more loosely. So, haven't become uh, sicker. So, what do you think is behind this pressure and this fad for parents to get labels for their children's behaviors? That's order. It's his birthday. A boy born in January, January would have twice the risk of ADHD as a kid born in December. This is a million kids, and this is the best predictor. Why? The youngest and most immature kid in the class is being labeled as mentally disordered. We're making a disease of immaturity. We should be spending the money. It's incredible. The growth rate in ADHD drugs is astounding. It used to be about a $50 million industry. 20 years ago, now it's a billion-dollar industry. Close to, I'm sorry, close to a $10 billion industry. It's increased by, by an enormous amount because of drug company marketing that has convinced parents, teachers, uh, physicians, especially primary care doctors, that the differences that should be expected amongst kids are, are due to a mental disorder, that these are easy to diagnose, easy to treat, it's a chemical imbalance, give a pill and everything will be wonderful. And it's just not like that. This is misleading advertising. Only in the United States and New Zealand can drug companies advertise directly to consumers on TV, the Internet, in magazines. And they have sunk a tremendous amount of money to convince us that our kids are sicker than they really are. Yes, it's, very, it's really very sad. And I think, you know, to, to compound it, um, you know, one of the problems parents um, face is that they need a label or a diagnosis to get accommodations for their children, um, which is a problem as well. Yeah, I think that the um, pressure, this is especially true with, with autism, that, that parents who have kids who can't really manage very well in, in the large classes that we have um, can get much better services for their kids if there's a diagnosis of autism class size may go from 40 to 4. And there's a pressure on everyone, clinicians, parents, teachers, to get kids better services. The trouble is that the label of autism, which is now being very, very loosely applied and misapplied, that's a label that can stick with the kid for life. It's very easy to give a diagnosis. It's very hard to, to uh, get rid of one. Kids can be haunted for life. I get several emails a week from parents whose kids have been misdiagnosed and, and describing all the trouble it's caused. So I think we've looked for, for psychiatric answers to societal problems. We would be a lot better off spending some of that $10 billion that's going to ADHD drugs to have smaller class sizes and more gym periods. These have been cut 
with the budget crisis. The classes have gotten bigger. The kids don't have a playground to uh, blow off steam. We shouldn't be medicalizing the, every problem that kids have. We should find other solutions because often medicalization will, will cause more harm than good and the money could be spent much better in other ways. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Archer, you know, what, what do you think? Do you think that possibly we've, we've come into a culture where we're so used to having a quick fix or the quick fix generation, you know, we can get answers to anything within seconds. Do you think this is playing a role at all? Yeah, it's absolutely playing a role. We are a microwave, immediate gratification, I want what I want and I want it right now type of society. And, of course, the Internet is a big part of that, as you alluded. We can find out anything about anything in, within five minutes. And one of the things that I've noticed uh, through the years is that 20 years ago, people didn't want to take medications for their psychiatric problem. They didn't want to take a pill, and they always said, just, I'm not ready to go that far. And I think that we had to work hard to destigmatize mental illness back in the 80s and the 90s so that people understood there are chemical imbalances of the brain, that medications do work. Unfortunately, that pendulum has swung way, way, way too far in the other direction to now I'm seeing people who go, well, I don't have time for therapy. Just give me a pill. I'll make it better. And unfortunately, that's carried over to our kids. And if you look at the ADHD diagnosis in particular, it's staggering. I can just throw out stats that, that will blow your mind. So roughly 10% in the United States will receive that diagnosis, ages 5 to 17. If you look in Great Britain, it's 2%. If you look in France, it's 0.5%. If you look in the U.S., it's 15% in North Carolina and 5% in Nevada. Now, how can that be a valid diagnosis when it varies so greatly? If you look at medications for the stimulant, 600,000 was spent on stimulant medication back in 1990, and now you're looking at $8 billion in revenue. 3.5 million kids are being medicated for ADHD. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I think, as Dr. Francis said, we are trying as a profession, the profession of psychiatry, to define normal. And normal used to be a big box that included a lot of people with a lot of quirks and a lot of idiosyncrasies. But we're making that normal box smaller and smaller and smaller so that if you fall outside of what's defined as normal, you have a diagnosis. And I, I think it's, it's concerning beyond belief where my profession is going with this. You know, I'm and so glad you said profession. that. I mean, I think that the thing that's amazing to me is that the, so many of the prescriptions are written by non-psychiatrists. After seven minutes with the patient, the kid, um, often the person has little knowledge of psychiatry, little interest in it, Tremendous influence by the drug salespeople, so that a diagnosis that should be very carefully done, because this is a crucial moment in the kid's life. A good diagnosis may dramatically improve his future. A bad diagnosis may haunt him forever. But these decisions are being made carelessly in very few minutes by people who don't really have the um, knowledge and training to be able to do it. Parents should not easily accept a diagnosis for their child and should, certainly should not accept putting a child on medication unless there's been a very, very careful process of evaluation. And they should be very informed consumers 
actively participating and negotiating, not just accepting a suggestion as if it's definitely going to be right. Right, and pediatricians, um, you know, um, acting as psychiatrists, I mean, some people live in very rural areas, they don't have access, but, you know, that that's a trend that I see that I don't like. But, um, Dr. Archer, I love what you said. Nobody said that on the show before, um, that the tide really has changed, that we fought so hard to fight the stigma and get people and children help that, it really has swung out of control. Um, and really, that's what prompted this interview. It was your article, um, The High Cost of a Quick Fix, um, that prompted the interview. And I can tell you that parents are oftentimes in a no-win situation. They're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't as far as um, pressure to medicate um, the children. So, um, you know, what what is the, the findings? I mean, the, I know that we wrote, you wrote about... Um, I'm actually trying to find it right now. Excuse me. Um, you wrote about um, the scientific research um, community, um, and you're saying that at long last there was an article that you wrote, and it said at long last the scientific research community is rethinking a 20-year-old study about the benefits of medicating ADHD with stimulants like Ritalin. The study, funded with 11 million dollars from the National Institute of Mental Health, weighed the pros and cons of medication versus long-term behavioral therapy and skills training. The findings came down to heavily favor medicating, arguing that pills trumped all other treatments, improving symptoms of the so-called disorder. Not only that, it found that adding any type of behavioral therapy offered no benefit to medication alone. Now the research community, including some of those authors of the study, have expressed concern that the benefits of medication was overstated. And according to the New York Times article, they now see that these oversold research uh, results have distorted the debate um, over the most effective and cost-effective treatments. And, you know, that's very frightening. So, um, you know, what are parents to believe? Um, You know, from what I see with many, many children, the behavioral therapies work just as well, if not better, or great in harmony. Yeah, that study which came out in the the 90s did just irreparable harm in terms of where our focus was in treating ADHD because essentially it said pills work, nothing else works. Don't waste your time with behavioral therapy. Don't waste your time with classroom modification. Don't waste your time with study habits. None of that works. Take a pill and it works. So thank goodness 20 years later, we're starting to look at that at critical eye and say, look, this was a multi-billion dollar gift to the pharmaceutical industry. That's all this was because we know emphatically that these other types of treatments work. And and fortunately, this is now being called out. But parents are in a no-win situation. They have teachers that are saying, I can't accept Johnny in my classroom because he is too disruptive. So you have to get him treated, and I recommend this doctor, and he'll give him a pill, and everything will be good. So they have the pressure from the schools. They have the peer pressure from other parents whose kids perhaps are taking the stimulants and are doing better in school. And, of course, the scary part about that is that there have been studies that have looked at normals on stimulants versus those with ADHD on stimulants and found that both groups had better test scores. So are we going to go a step further and say we want to medicate everybody so that they get better grades and score better on their test? Of course not. It's just a slippery slope that we're sliding down rapidly, and 
thank goodness now we're having the discussion to say we know that in these kids with ADHD that increased uh, recess and increased exercise helps. We know that shorter classes multiple times throughout the day help. We know that being studying for 15 minutes at a time on a subject and then switching to another one and keep repeating until done rather than an hour on math and an hour on history, we know that works. So there are all kinds of behavioral modifications that are out there that we know are effective. It's just getting the word out to the general population that, look, you know, if you have a behavioral problem with your kid, it doesn't mean they have ADHD. It doesn't mean they have autism necessarily. And there could be some very simple fixes if you're willing to put the time and effort into working with your child and having the school work with them as well. And that's the discussion we need to get going. Well, that's the key the, thing, uh, is putting in the time. I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead, Dr. Francis. I think that the um, people need to realize that no one study ever has all the answers. So this study was done on a very short-term basis originally. The initial results were based on the immediate effects. It didn't have the chance initially to study the long-term effects. It turns out that they wore off. But we don't even have any understanding of what the very long-term effects are. It's very difficult to say when we give a medicine to a kid now, what will be the impact of this medicine 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, because no one stays along alive long enough to do the kinds of longitudinal research that would be, be necessary to determine long-term risk. So if kids really need medicine, if there's a crying need, a kid should definitely get the medicine. On the other hand, it shouldn't be given out like candy, which is what's happening now, because it's a kind of experiment with our kids. It's a kind of nationwide experiment on what happens if you give millions of kids stimulant drugs without knowing what you're doing. For that small percentage of kids who really need it, the risk is worth it. For the vast number of kids who are getting the diagnosis after very careless evaluations, getting the medicine when we have no reason to think it's going to be helpful in the long run, probably won't be helpful very much in the short run. But this is a nationwide experiment with our children that makes no sense. I think that parents have to protect their kids from excessive diagnosis and excessive treatment. And excessive. I, I want to echo that. And, and also throw in that, unfortunately, the way the DSM is set up, it almost appears that these psychiatric diagnoses come with an on-off switch. If you meet five of eight criteria, you have a diagnosis, four of eight you don't. When what we should be talking about is these things occur along a continuum. And those that are a far end of the ADHD continuum, if we're ranking it from one to ten, at a nine or a ten or a ten plus, yeah, there's a good chance they do need medication for treatment. But unfortunately, all of these fives, sixes, fours are being lumped in with the nines and tens because they have the same diagnosis and therefore they're getting the same treatment, which unfortunately in 50% of the diagnoses is a pill. And two things I wanted to mention was the misuse of stimulants in college kids that have no diagnosis. Um, and, it, and it's appalling that even some parents, um, you know, allow this. They get their children these prescriptions because they think it helps them focus better, do better on tests. And like you said, you know, these, these are, uh, you know, some very serious drugs. But I want to go back to what we were talking about, about um, 
the quick fix of a pill, and then you don't need to put the time in to other type of behavioral therapies. So, I mean, like you said, there are a lot of simple things we can do. Some kids need to fidget to focus. Kids need to move. Um, but also, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy can be very, very effective. Um, now, what what is your feeling, um, Dr. Archer, about um, the use of short-term medications to make a child more available to other type of therapies and then weaning them off the medications? Is that a slippery slope or is that helpful? I think that's a slippery slope, too. And I think that medication needs to be a last resort, not the first resort, and, and even short-term medication. So uh, my thought is there's so many different behavioral interventions that we can look at depending on the child that should be explored. There's n- I, I'm not saying the medication is never indicated. Of course it is. And, but I think that, again, if that's the last resort, then you look at these are the things that we can do to help in this particular case, and we want to try those things first. If they fail, then, of course, you're looking at, the potential for medication, and, and that's fine. But it's a mindset that not only with the physicians has to change, but with the teachers and with the parents and with really society as a whole. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I am the strongest advocate about is, um, you know, telling parents not to um, – you know, not to be pressured by conformity and to fight to get your child a differentiated education because as we're going to move on to the next um, topic, um, you know, sometimes that's really what these children need. There are different learning styles, different thinking styles, and, um, you know, that could be a problem too because troublesome behavior is not always a mental illness. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think it's very important that, that there be a stepped process of diagnosis with the diagnosis coming only after a long period of time which everything else has been thought of first and tried. Um, watchful waiting, normalizing, advice, trying to change the um, situation at home in the classroom, uh, therapy and counseling, all of these should come well before the diagnosis and medicine should be a very last resort. It's also what you mentioned before is amazing, Marion, that 30%, 30% of college kids are taking diverted drugs that were originally prescribed for someone else and have gotten on a secondary illegal market using them for performance enhancement and and for recreation. And 10% of high school kids are. So because we have this tremendous glut of these medicines out there, there's a a spillover and they're being misused by, by kids in ways that can be much more harmful to them than helpful. I think it's important to realize that the short term gain from the pills, this is what Dale was saying, will usually not be worth the long-term pains and harms. That we, uh, As parents, we would never tell our high school kids to take steroids so that they could compete better in high school sports. That would be irresponsible in a parent to do. It's equally irresponsible for a parent to encourage a kid to take a pill so they can do better on a test. That's a great analogy. Uh, you know, I think one of the problems is that, you know, parents want their kids to be happy and they focus so much on their kids being happy and doing well in school that they're not teaching them calming techniques. They're not teaching them how to deal with their differences. And, um, you know, that's a problem. You can't just give the child a pill to change who they are. Um, you know, they're not broken. Um, you know, you published, um, um, Dr. Francis, you published an article that I loved, and it discussed it, uh, giftedness as one of the most misdiagnosed. But there are also a lot of other reasons that children are misdiagnosed. Um, you know, so what, 
I'd like to go into a few of those. So if you could start, just talk a little bit about um, the problem with children with giftedness, that they're being diagnosed with all these disorders that they don't have. I think we have to realize that there's no situation that's harder for diagnosis than a kid. The kids have very short track records. They change a lot from week to week. Um, The pressures they may feel from peers and from family can cause symptoms that really don't have much clinical meaning but can seem very uh, powerful at the moment. And we should be especially cautious ever in diagnosing any child and in prescribing medication before we have a sense of what the longer-term longitudinal picture looks like. And this gets to be particularly true in kids who are gifted. They um, are on one side of the bell curve in terms of their IQ, and that may make them different than other kids in lots of other ways as well. And they can be misunderstood. We can take symptoms that may be part of what makes them wonderful and unique and turn them into mental disorder and act like it's something that needs to be treated. What you said before is absolutely important. We shouldn't get into a monoculture where we expect everyone to be the same. We're doing this in our agriculture. We're doing this in the way we standardize so many aspects of life. And we shouldn't have the idea that because the products we buy and the things we eat are so standardized that we ourselves should become sort of um, assembly line creatures, all of whom look alike. The reason we're so different now is because evolution wanted it this way. It was of great survival value to the tribe to have people who were different. If everyone were alike, the tribe wouldn't be able to respond to all the stresses and uh, new situations that evolution required us to be able to deal with. So it's great that we're different. We shouldn't think that all difference means mental disorder. We shouldn't be trying to treat everyone to be much more alike. The the, um, standard best description of this is Brave New World. Aldous Huxley's book from about seven years ago, where the society tries to enforce conformity and have people be all alike. And the way to do this is to take a pillage there. He called it Selma. He kind of predicted what would be happening. We have to get away from the idea that each of us must fit a cookie-cutter description of what's normal and accept that the, um, the realm of normal has many, many, many different types of people. A great line from a British psychologist is, we've taken the huge pool of normal and we're now turning it into a small puddle. We shouldn't be doing that. Um, Dr. Archer, you know, I also wanted to talk about, we just did a series um, on the maverick mind, uh, Dr. Sharif Lawrence, and we, we, we really was very in-depth, I think it was a four-part series, and I was very surprised to learn that up to 90% of a child's school day is auditory, and, you know, how that would present in a child that's a visual thinker, a visual learner. Um, you know, we're also doing an upcoming special on synesthesia, um, where these children, you know, see numbers as colors, and um, it's just very confusing. So, you know, what advice would you give a parent, um, you know, with so many different possibilities? Um, you know, what is the, the high cost of misdiagnosing? Well, I think, first of all, that I will echo Dr. Francis in that society is striving for everyone to be normal. And it's interesting that he wrote a book with normal in the title. I wrote a book with normal in the title. And I think that's, that's a very important commentary on our culture and on our society. But we have to stop for a second and realize that normal means average 
Normal means average. So when we take these kids, and, and I'll use ADHD since that's what I've been talking the most about lately, but you take an ADHD child and we're saying, okay, well, this has all these characteristics and traits, and these are the problems that are associated with that. We don't look and say, well, wait a minute, what are some of the good things that perhaps come along with this? And what we have to realize is that I often think of ADHD as a diagnosis of easily bored. These kids, and even adults, become easily bored. And if we use Dr. Francis' evolutionary example and we go back to the tribe from 50,000 years ago, the ADHD guy was probably not very happy sitting around in a, in a sedate village in the calms of uh, in the times of calm when everything is going well. But in the times of a crisis, they rise to the fore. And, and we can look today and see that these kids and adults can do extremely well in times of a crisis. And the ADHD guy was probably the guy who said, you know what, I'm bored here. I want to go out and discover new lands and go find a new stream for, the, for water or find a new hunting ground. So they were active and Today's world doesn't really allow that for our kids. We put them in a classroom for eight hours a day. We teach them the same thing, an hour per class. And if they don't conform to that, we want to treat them. And there's something inherently wrong with that. We have to realize that the genetic diversity that we have is hugely important for us as a society. And rather than trying to make all of these people conform, we should be saying, What's good about ADHD? Well, three they're three times more likely to start their own business and be an entrepreneur. Well, that's pretty good. So there are all kinds of inherent strengths that go along with all of these traits and these quote-unquote diagnoses, and we're not looking at that. We're only looking at, well, it's not good because they're not normal, and they're not like everybody else, and we want them to conform and sit in this classroom and be just like everyone else, and that's the big part of the problem right there is embracing the fact that there are these differences, and let's look at what's good about it, not call it, slap a diagnosis on it and treat it with a pill. Right, and you know, Dr. Giada, do you know Dr. Thomas Armstrong? Um, he, he's been on several times. I mean, that's what he talks about, finding the strengths in really any disorder. Um, and, you know, that's what you're talking about. Um, Dr. Francis, I just want to... Um, just so that parents understand, we're not saying here that if your child is taking medication to stop the medication. That could be the worst thing you could do is to abruptly stop anything. Um, so I want you to talk about how, let's just say there's a parent listening that has um, a kid that's on medication and, you know, they're really having second thoughts. It's not really helping. They're wondering if other um, methods could have worked better. And another thing I want to mention, um, only because I lived this, is that parents really need to insist on an endocrine evaluation, especially for teenage girls that have anxiety, depression, panic attacks, because my daughter was misdiagnosed, and she wound up having an endocrine disorder, and when we treated that, she did much better. Um, so, you know, it's important to get a medical, a really good thorough evaluation, too, to find any type of organic basis. But, um, Dr. Francis, what would you say to a parent now who has a child on medication and they're self-doubting? No, I think that you raise a crucial point that we're both emphasizing, all three of us are emphasizing the importance of care before making the diagnosis and getting treatment. It's equally important to be careful and cautious before stopping a treatment because the kid may need it and because there can be withdrawal effects when you stop medication abruptly. I think parents should become very informed consumers. They should be armed with questions every time they see a doctor. 
if they don't get common sense answers that work for them, they need second and maybe third and maybe fourth opinions. It should be an informed decision that takes into account all the possible information and it should be done slowly and under medical supervision. Medicine shouldn't be started quickly. It shouldn't be stopped quickly. Absolutely. And um, Dr. Archer, I'd like to end up the interview with you. Uh, I want to talk about the apples, and the apples being us as parents. They say the apples don't fall far from the trees. And, you know, everyone has some degree of something. We've all got something. We're a little quirky. We're a little off. But, I mean, that's, I mean, if we didn't have a little OCD, we wouldn't even function. So, you know, I think it's really the degree and if it causes impairment. But many adults don't get their diagnosis of Asperger's or ADHD or anything else until after their child has been diagnosed. And, you know, some people have struggled and some have, you know, taken what may now be considered a deficit or a disorder and used it, as you say, to create incredible, successful lives. So um, what do you think it is that makes one person able to embrace their differences and become exceptional, like you write in your book, and what would make another struggle and become unproductive? So, you know, how can parents use their experience to change themselves and to help their children embrace who they are? Well, I think that's really the the question because certainly uh, I know uh, in my practice individuals who um, are clearly ADHD and are, are struggling with it, and then I know other people outside my practice who are clearly ADHD and are incredibly successful. And I'll tell you a story. Uh, a friend of mine that I grew up with uh, came to me not too long ago. He's a very successful businessman, founded his own business, and is doing very, very well. And he said, I want you to see my son. Uh, he clearly has ADHD, and he's just really um, having difficulty in school. And I think it's probably time that he needs to be medicated because he, he's just not able to to, uh, to keep up and to do well and uh, to conform with what's expected. And I said, Lewis, I said, you and I grew up together. And I said, there's no one in this world that's more ADHD than you were. And in fact, that you still are. And I said, and you've turned out great and without ever taking a pill and really without ever getting any type of therapy. I said, you need to look back on your life and the things that you did and the way you were able to parlay that into incredible success and talk to your son about that. I said, because that's where the answers will be. And he goes, wow, you know, I, I, I never thought about that. I never considered the fact that I was ADHD because I learned how to deal with it and to cope with it. And then I chose a career that was very, very effective for what I had. So I was like opening his eyes, and so the problem is those who are successful with ADHD, and I'm working on my new book now, which is called The ADHD Advantage, and I've done uh, probably 100 interviews. But the adults that look back will realize they had ADHD when I'm talking to them, but before that they never considered it because they're successful and they've done well. Mm -hmm. So... I think the problem is those who have parlayed it into success never considered that they had the exact same traits and characteristics as many that are struggling. And if we can use that resource to be able to say, well, I had it, and I did well, and here's what I did, then that, I think, will help many of these that are struggling with a quote-unquote diagnosis. That's fantastic. Uh, Dr. Francis, do you have any um, closing words to parents? 
That has been a great a great discussion. And again, you know, if you have a parent who has a kid in trouble, it's not easy to stand back and watch it. And there's a strong desire to do something to help. And I think what we're all saying is that sometimes the the road to hell is paved with good intentions and bad unintended consequences. That it's good to get as much information as you can and as many opinions and take the time before jumping in with a decision that may cause more harm than good. Well, I want to thank you both. As you said, it's been a great interview. You're going to help a lot of parents um, and educators. We have a lot of educators that listen to the show as well. Um, I have a blog on our website, and it's called um, The High Cost of a Quick Fix, and you can find the links to the articles um, that we spoke about, and you can find links to the um, Dr. Archer and Dr. Francis's websites as well as um, other links of their works and their books. So that's www.thecoffeeclatch.com. And I just want to say to parents that... Um, there's even more reason not to look for a quick fix. Um, you know, we need to take care in choosing our words when we speak to our children and in our actions and understand that our children um, are not interchangeable with their disorders. And sometimes, you know, through no intention of our own, um, you know, trying to find a quick fix can make the child feel they're broken. And these kids aren't broken. Um, so we need to really, you know, respect the, the, the wonderful part of being different. Um, and help your child embrace who they are. So thank you for joining us as I end each show. You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent with us on The Coffee Clatch. And as I said, you can find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you again, Dr. Dr. Big Grips Frame is the original big and squishy case for iPad. It's lightweight, durable, and non-toxic. Loved and trusted by schools and families across the country and around the world. Grab Big Grips today at BigGrips.com.